Well, this time last week, we talked about how the Spirit of God is an anointing spirit who chooses us to join in and follow the Chosen One, Jesus, in his Good News mission. And as a way into that discussion, I talked about a more contemporary Chosen One. Anyone who is here remembers, I talked about in the realm of basketball, LeBron James. And since then, his team went 0-3 and got swept from the finals. So I appreciate your text messages about the Chosen One's inability to get it done. I'm also available to curse your favorite sports rival uh, from the pulpit. Um, but, today, but today we'll um, kind of have a part two to last week's story about David and the Spirit. I want to start by reading a poem by a poet named Christian Wyman called From a Window. And uh, a little background, Christian Wyman um, was diagnosed with an incurable blood disease, and a lot of this set of poems comes from um, the immediate period after finding that out and struggling with anger and grief and despair, um, especially related to his faith. Um, and and I, it's an amazing collection of poems uh, called Every Riven Thing that I would really suggest, but here's from a window. Incurable and unbelieving in any truth but the truth of grieving, I saw a tree inside a tree rise kaleidoscopically as if the leaves had livelier ghost, I pressed my face as close to the pain as I could get to watch that fitful, fluent spirit that seemed a single being undefined or countless beings of one mind haul its strange cohesion beyond the limits of my vision over the house heavenwards. Of course I knew those leaves were birds. Of course that old tree stood exactly as it had and would, but why should it seem fuller now? And though a man's mind might endow even a tree with some excess of life to which a man seems witness, that life is not the life of men, and that is where the joy came in. So this speaker stands at a window, witnessing a tree temporarily filled with vibrancy it normally doesn't possess. Like, he calls it a tree inside of a tree, and this is, of course, uh, a flock of birds. Do you know that flock is called a murmuration? Isn't that like one of those perfect words that means exactly how it sounds? A murmuration of birds rising kaleidoscopically, hauntingly, leaving kind of the husk of a tree, which always was, uh, but it leaves it kind of both sadder and fuller than it was before. The poet always has like an attention to detail and an intensity that most of us lack, but uh, helps us connect with the world. They describe for us what we've seen and felt and intuited in words that are too rich for most of us to have access to on our own. And our text today, Psalm 51, finds us really downstream in the life of David, following his anointing as king that we talked about last week and his subsequent enthronement. Many of us know well what got us here to this sorrowful poem, this song of repentance. But a reminder, we'll do a quick run through of like what happened between last week and this week to get us to Psalm 51 to get us to, 
to what's going on with David. And there's um, a lot of our Bibles, most of our Bibles, have this like prescript heading in the Psalms. Pay attention to those, they're really important. They, they say things like, uh, for the lead player, and kind of make some musical notations sometimes, which like, I think on our doxology song sheet it says like, doxology a la Tom Petty. It would be something like that. But in this case, it says, the, the prescript heading talks about this encounter of David with Nathan upon when he went and lied with Bathsheba. It kind of gives it away. And here's, here's the context from 2 Samuel 11. And many of you are familiar with this. It says, in the spring when kings go out off to war, David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites. And they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back. Isn't this uh, Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he had sex with her. And if this wasn't bad enough, uh, what follows that is this, this pretty detailed cover-up that David kind of demonstrates his deep cunning and willingness to do just about anything to save himself, to cover his own tracks. He orchestrates like an especially dangerous military assignment for Uriah to get him killed, so he has like plausible deniability in all this. Um, and Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. He wants him eliminated. It seems that David is especially willing to sacrifice Uriah for the sake of his own reputation and for the status quo of Israel's political life. I'm sure he could justify it really well. Like, Israel needs me to keep going. Like, lies beget lies, and sin begets sin. And then, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan shows up. Nathan is the court prophet. What an absurd job to, to have. Someone specifically tasked with speaking truth to power. This seems an almost impossible job, not only to have and do well, but an impossible job to like keep your job or keep your life if you're doing this well, right? An impossible job to not be corrupted, to not have the message kind of sanded down to nothing. So Nathan comes into David knowing about this affair and knowing about the, the murder for the cover-up. And Nathan comes in telling the whole truth slant in a story, in, in a parable. You might imagine him kind of also wanting a little bit of plausible deniability here. So I, he unleashes this really subtle but powerful little story about a rich man defrauding a poor man out of his only meager possession just for his own pleasure and greed. And David is so mad. He's like, that is so unjust. That is terrible. And then Nathan springs the trap and says, yeah, you're that guy. And David falls apart, and, and, and his only response is, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. So our Psalm 51 then, and that's kind of all it says in the story, but Psalm 51 is, is like David's uh, diary. 
like his memoir, his, the song he wrote about this that kind of unfolds a poem of repentance where he with attention and intensity which most of us lack describes what we've seen and felt and intuited in words too rich uh, for most of us to have access to. Particularly for our interest in this study, David talks in this prayer of repentance about the spirit. We've been talking this summer about the spirit throughout scripture over and over and, and some of you, I know I was a little surprised to see in this prayer of repentance how often the spirit, both lowercase and capital S, shows up. David says, create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will come back to you. So two things I want to emphasize, which David seems to know so well about the Spirit's forgiving, healing, restoring work. First off, and I'll I'll use some of the words from Wyman's poem, the Spirit of God is fitful. The Spirit of God will not be controlled or manipulated. Like that tree in Wyman's poem, or in Jesus' own words, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born with the Spirit. That's what Jesus says in John 3, 8. Even as the Spirit of the Lord falls upon David, marking him out as anointed by Samuel, David seems threatened, seems horrified that this Spirit might fly the coop on him. It's no wonder that David freaks out after he saw what happened to Saul when the spirit left Saul. Saul literally goes crazy. David thinks, that's it. The spirit's going away from me. Don't mishear me here. The the spirit is not that uh, prone to whims. The spirit is not skittish. He simply will not underwrite David's sin. In this situation, the one bearing the full force and power of the spirit is not David, but rather the prophet Nathan, who is doing the work of illuminating and opening eyes and releasing captives and preaching good news. So there's a reversal here. All the things that David's supposed to be doing, all those things from Isaiah 61 that we talked about last week, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captives healing, all those things Nathan is doing to David. There's a rehearsal, uh, a reversal happening, and now David is not the doer, but the recipient. David is getting gospel too. The Spirit always affords for this sort of reversal. He's always making room for the first to become last. Not as a punishment necessarily, but as a, as a chance to be released from the bondage and pressure of always having to be in charge. The Spirit's always providing opportunities for the caregiver to be cared for. This is why the church empowered by the Spirit is a, is a place for this kind of spirit work to happen, this, this mutuality to take root. Where the Spirit is grieved is when we solidify old patterns of relating to each other, and, and we grieve the Spirit by not being open to learning new things from unlikely characters. So walking in the Spirit means having ears to hear when you're wrong, like David seems to hear. David, who's normally, David's like the Jesus like uh, preview, like David's like the Jesus character in the story. 
But in this story, he becomes like the disciples. Did you notice that? He's the one getting spoken to in parables that he doesn't understand until the punchline gets sprung on him by Nathan. He's listening and learning from Nathan's parable. This might be the greatest evidence for David's life in the spirit. Not all of the, like, the good things that he's done, but David's spiritual maturity comes and that he could actually hear and be willing to locate Nathan's criticism outside of Nathan and receive it as a word from the Lord. Do you know how hard that is? Like in our lives about small things to, to get criticism and not to just immediately lurch back on the person that criticizes, but actually hear what they're saying? Maybe, maybe hear, uh, hear even through like an imperfect way of, of them saying that? Here's an even harder, harder one. Like this might be the phase our society is in right now, inside and outside of the church, whether um, like I'm thinking of like courageous affirmations like Me Too or some of the much needed conversation around whiteness. Like walking in the spirit means listening and receiving criticism. Like allowing ourselves to be surprised by criticism. Waiting long enough to actually hear the punchline of the story and this is even if these things aren't told in like tidy, nice parables, if they're like harshly articulated from years and generations of suffering and hurt, but that we can take these things because we're durable people in the spirit. And we can take them not as an assault or as an attack, but as the spirit's like decentering work of calling us into repentance and renewal. Like that we can be renewed by listening and receiving. I think this is the scandal of the Spirit's work in the life of the anointed one. That this is the same Spirit that anointed David, it's also the same Spirit that is confronting David. And this is the, the scandal in the life of the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus our Lord, whose ministry following his baptism, his proclamation of the, of the Lord's anointing, of the Spirit's anointing, his whole life then includes eating with outsiders and religious elites alike. You see this like decentering feature in Jesus's life. It's surprising, it's scandalous. This is a feature and not a bug of how Jesus operates. The spirit is not controlled or manipulated but might lead to unlikely places and potentially uncomfortable conversations for the sake of healing and bringing about a new thing. And the main new thing here is a new humanity in Jesus. Like Ephesians talks about this new humanity as one new man made out of two humans because of a smashed down wall of, of hostility. And that's the work the Spirit's doing. As Bob Dylan once sang, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. We're talking about the Spirit. Like you can see this work of the Spirit by the way the wind is blowing. You don't, you don't need it mapped out. You can see this work even if it is strange to us because it's not a secret. This work might be unruly, but again, it's not fickle. The wind doesn't change like on a dime. As we continue to pay attention, we can start to see the moves of this like murmuration and then better attend to this life of joy too and for others. So there's this uh, I think there's several episodes like this in the life of Jesus. But there's this one story that shows up and I think it captures this kind of scandal that like probably during you couldn't see it coming but if you step back in the grand scheme of things you see what's happening. 
uh, you, you understand the Spirit's work uh, that's going on. And this is one of the few stories that is told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was in Bethany, and John's Gospel really takes pains to remind us that Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. In short, Bethany is where miracles happen. Bethany is where new life burst in the middle of sin and death. So Jesus was in Bethany, and a woman comes and interrupts his dinner and opens, uh, probably more accurately, smashes an alabaster flask and pours expensive ointment on Jesus' head right in front of everyone. Like this jar was sort of like a piggy bank. Like it was like a one-time thing. Like once it was busted, it was done. And she chooses to spend it on Jesus, to spend it all on Jesus. She chooses to anoint Jesus with that oil that would have cost her a lot, maybe everything. And then immediately, Jesus' buddies are struck by the impropriety of it all. Like Luke actually highlights like how kind of suggestive this all is, right? And Jesus' friends, like I'll give, I'll give them... I'll give them credit, I'll interpret them charitably. They, they're going around Galilee and they see these massive needs that they're encountering on a daily basis. They have all these requests for healing and for food and, and for material things. And so they're scandalized because of how wasteful this woman just was. Say, why did you do that? We could have sold that and given it all to the poor. They thought they were on the side of like piety and, and wisdom, right? But Jesus, Jesus right in the moment, like without the benefit of stepping back, Jesus sees her, sees what she's done to him and for him and calls it beautiful. He gets her deeply poetic actions as she prepares him for burial, which at this point of the story is still a little ways off, and then which ultimately won't be contained by death. This woman is walking in this fitful spirit, tuned into the surprise and costliness and beauty of the gospel. And for that reason, Jesus says we're always going to remember her everywhere the gospel is told. You know, do you notice how different this is from the David story? Like David's selfish lusty, power-playing sin, which then forecloses room for the Spirit to work, who lives in a world of immediate gratification. He, he sees her, she, they bring her to him, and then he sins. Instead, this woman, the, this woman doesn't have this life built on lies for self-preservation or zero-sum games. This woman demonstrates the good news. Where David is pointing at some other man's wife and saying, she is beautiful. Jesus is pointing at this woman's sacrifice and says, that is beautiful. That is the definition of beauty. That costliness and sacrifice. She's walking in this good news and walking with the Spirit and tilling the soil of sacrifice and costly grace and sorrow and joy. And, and the Spirit will, will surprisingly work to raise Jesus, resuscitated Lazarus, but the Spirit will raise Jesus from the dead and bring us all new life. And we're going to talk about this woman every time we talk about the gospel. Do you see how all of this opens up and works 
with this uncontainable, uncontrollable spirit of the living God. None of us, not even David, possesses the spirit on our own. None of us, not even David, is immune to the spirit's hard words which call us out of sin. And this is, a good, this is really good news for us. So the spirit is, is not to be manipulated. The spirit is fitful. The spirit of God is also fluent. The spirit knows us and draws near to us. If I've scared you in that first section about the spirit who can't be contained and who might confront you, uh, comfort, comfort my people for the second section. The spirit is fluent and knows us and draws near to us. The spirit is with us. Well before Jesus promised his spirit to us as a paraclete, the come-besider, who'd be Christ's presence for us as he sits to the right hand of the Father as we wait his return, we encounter a spirit who knows us intimately. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, and this is a psalm that I've memorized and sung to my kids when they were in their, in their crib and cradle. It says, you have searched me and you know me. Later, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand holds me fast. This spirit hems us in behind and before. Where can we go from your spirit? High or low, deep or wide? Perhaps this is the main reason that David's confession talks about the spirit. He knows. He's felt that intimacy. He can kind of see like the, the faint exposure of that, of that spirit, like the birds and that tree. He can sense it when it's gone. But he also remembers the electricity of that presence. He knows the Spirit's return is his only hope to be made whole. He needs a new, faithful Spirit deep down. He's desperate for God's presence. He can't be deprived of the Holy Spirit because with that Spirit comes joy, the gladness of rescue. This is why perhaps the last line of that stanza is a promise to assist in the rescue of others. That's where the joy comes in, in alignment with God's purpose and mission. David was participating in his own purpose and mission and got sidetracked, and he says, now I will tell scoffers and I will help people follow you and not go astray the way I did. Participation in God's grace for others and experiencing it and extending God's presence into the world. As Poet, pastor, preacher, Frederick Buechner puts it, to confess your sins to God is not like telling God anything God doesn't already know, but until you confess them, however, they are an abyss between you. But when you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. It's this bridge of confession and forgiveness that the Spirit builds and walks and carries us over, and it's that bridge that David wants to go, that David goes running. It's a spirit then that also like 
formulates the syllables and motivates us and breathes into our vocal cords, as Howard Thurman says, because each in our own tongue we whisper, there is forgiveness in God. There is forgiveness with God. So maybe I think you can hear this passage this morning. You can pray this psalm this morning and, and maybe do it in one of two ways or maybe both at the same time. First, hearing this fitful spirit which stands apart from us and might say really hard words that we need to just take and, and digest and let us, let us ask for forgiveness and seek healing and have the courage to be confronted. Or maybe you're sitting here and you need this fluent spirit that is so fluent in your own language that you don't even know very well and stands in and with us and says, fall apart and I'll put you back together. Be courageous enough to be with me because I'm with you. Open up your life to intimacy and communion and share this good news. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you for this spirit that, that you send so freely. That you you in the poet's words, you haul your strange cohesion beyond the limits of our vision, Lord. Um, stay just beyond the limits of our vision, but give us a vision for how you are right in our midst. Uh, Lord, uh, give us boldness and courage to be confronted, to listen well, and to receive. Make us hospitable people um, for your hard words. Help us not kill your prophets the way, um, the way Jesus was killed. Uh, instead, um, heal us. That's our prayer. We pray for that healing spirit work. We pray that it happens in our lives and hearts and communities. We pray that we're part of that happening outside of the walls of this church. Let us be healers with your spirit who heals us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.